Hello and welcome to the EMJ Primary Survey. It's October 2019 and I'm here to tell you the interesting papers that are appearing in this month's edition. Now, the primary survey you've probably seen is in the EMJ. It's the first thing that we put out there and the idea is we highlight the papers of interest. Well, they're all of interest, but these are the ones that have particularly caught the eye of Caroline Leach, who's this month's editor. So, First choice is a paper looking at language barriers in the ED. And this is actually one of our editor's choice papers. So even if you're not subscribed online, you should be. But even if you're not, you can get on there and you can see the full paper with no paywalls and no barriers at all. And it's really about the critical topic of communication and the concern that patients with a different first language are more likely to experience adverse events and poorer outcomes in the ED. And I think most of us know this. I mean, think about how you communicate with a patient who's got a different first language. Do you ask a member of the family to translate or a member of staff? Do you use Google Translate even or other translation systems I'm sure are available? Or do you attempt some form of rudimentary translation yourself? Sign language, waving, pointing, all sorts of things which I've seen happen in, in practice. Now, the recommended methods of using a telephone interpreter service or an in-person professional interpreter often more challenging to get due to time and availability and sometimes even cost. Um, I mean, not everybody does it. We have to know this. So in this United States study, nine Spanish-speaking patients were followed through their ED journey to assess how the language barrier was addressed. The ED had an official interpreter service available within the hospital for 13 hours a day. The findings were that for the early triage and initial provider assessment, an interpreter was frequently employed. But for ongoing evaluation and treatment, a recommended method was much less likely. So this is an interesting paper, and it's got a good commentary that you should also read from a professor of sociolinguistics. And it's quite reflective. I think put yourself in the situation if you were in an emergency department with a significant issue and you were struggling to communicate as a patient. I think you can imagine how difficult that is. But I also have a lot of sympathy for the clinicians who often have been given a guideline saying you must always do the translation this way, but with a very frequent and often quite short time period interactions that we have with patients, that's that's clearly very difficult. And in my department, I think somebody told me the other day that in my local environment, we have 120 different languages spoken. That's going to be tricky to do that for all of those languages. So we have to find a way between the recommended and also the practical and the pragmatic. And it's it's a complicated one, but, you know, have a look at that. Oh, and not in the journal, but one of the things I've seen in the medical schools, which I think is really good and perhaps should come into our postgraduate education, is the idea that we teach people how to take a history, but we should also teach people how to take a history from somebody who doesn't speak English as a first language. How do you use a, an interpreter, optimally? That kind of thing. Now, I know there are medical schools around the, um, the country in the UK who are doing that. Good on them. I think we should see more of it. Paper number two is around framing bias and diagnostic accuracy. Now, diagnostics is absolutely key to emergency medicine, so we should really understand how it works and sometimes how it doesn't. So framing bias occurs when people make a decision based on the way the information is presented as opposed to just on the facts themselves. And it's why people like Caroline don't like juniors checking the computer prior to seeing the patient, looking at the past medical history and previous attendances before they see them. This also drives me nuts. Sorry, if you're the person who does that. But it, it really does affect um, how you, you see patients. So Povich et al. from New Zealand have presented three written hypothetical cases to consultants and registrars in emergency stroke internal medicine and asked them to come up with a diagnosis and an investigation plan. 
So the case descriptions had the same information, but the authors deliberately wrote one of the cases to be suggestive towards a diagnosis of PE versus away from PE, and another were towards or away from a diagnosis of interstitial lung disease. So they hypothesize, and this is what they found, that the physicians were more likely to diagnose the condition based on the framing of the case. And that's got important implications for how junior doctors present cases to seniors for sign-off or in clinical handovers. And I think Caroline's suggestion is that she's going to show the team the cases in the paper without the titles as a valuable lesson in how framing can really create a cognitive bias and lead you down potentially the wrong track. Caroline's third paper is about emotions running high, good or bad. And I think we're all interested in studies that look at how we might improve the detection of cardiac arrest and the initiation of bystander CPR by the public. Really important. It's the big thing in the chain of survival. And in this study from Taiwan, the authors listened into telephone audio recordings from the ambulance dispatch centre for patients who were in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. They graded the call as emotional content and cooperation score, which they called an ECCS, quite cool, and determined how often cardiac arrest was identified by the dispatcher and how quickly telephone-instructed CPR was started. Dispatchers were actually more likely to recognise cardiac arrest as the ECCS increased and the caller became more emotional. As expected, a higher percentage of the highly emotional callers were not able to initiate CPR, but in those that did, they were quicker to begin chest compressions than calm callers. The study did not assess this, but I wonder if a high ECCS in the caller might be a clue that the person is in cardiac arrest. Really interesting. I was at the ERC, the European Resuscitation Council meeting in Slovenia, lovely country, great people. And one of the things that came out of that was the difference in how dispatchers behaved on the phone. So we had a conversation with some of the American uh, team and they played some audio of how the dispatchers talked. And it wasn't, I don't know, aggressive is the word, um, but it was very assertive. You are going to do this. This is something you must do. Have you done this? As opposed to, I suspect, what we have in, in, in Britain, which is perhaps a little bit more polite. Can you? Would you? Now, I'm not an expert in this area, so I might be wrong here, but it was really quite striking about how directive some of the instructions were. I think this can all link into the same thing. That first block in the chain of survival is so important and we do need to get it right because, you know, you might want to do ECMO because it's really cool. But actually, unless you've got bystander CPR, it's probably a bit pointless. Caroline then goes to look at diurnal variation in chest pain and acute myocardial infarction. Um, it's a US study using the ambulance call time of 2065 consecutive patients with non-traumatic chest pain to identify patterns in the presentation of STEMI and NSTEMI. 7.5% of the cohort had a final diagnosis of myocardial infarction. But the inflow of all chest pain patients, cases run by the ambulance service, was greatest between 0900 and 2 o'clock, 1400. And the peak frequency of STEMI was found at 10 o'clock in the morning and NSTEMI at 10 o'clock at night. Kind of interesting. However, the diurnal variation of MI matched the pattern of on-call times of non-MI chest pain, meaning that the pre-hospital provider should have a high index of suspicion at any time. You know, so it's not, it's just chest pain peaking at those times as opposed to necessarily MI. And whilst it's often been said that MIs are most likely to occur in the early morning hours, for patients arriving by EMS doesn't appear to be the case. So one to think about. And um, then we're looking at pulmonary embolism following complex major trauma. Done quite a lot of work around this recently. Some interesting papers in the New England Journal of Medicine about use of filters and things. But this isn't that. This is O'Leary and colleagues from the Addenbrooke's Major Trauma Centre in Cambridge, retrospectively reviewing 30 months of data to identify the incidence of PE in adult major trauma patients admitted to critical care. 
Now, on the critical care, 4.6% of the population had a diagnosed PE. And of those, 12 of the 48 patients had evidence of immediate PE on their first whole body CT on arrival to hospital, with a further two patients having evidence of PE on their scan after emergency theatres. So the pathophysiology of immediate PE is not really that well understood. Could these patients have asymptomatic medical PE before their trauma? Possibly. Is the PE caused by direct pulmonary injury from the impact? Possibly. Is it a side effect of the coagulation response to acute trauma? Is it limb injury causing deep venous thrombosis with rapid progression? One thing the authors did find is that there's no difference in the instance of PE in patients who'd been on early TXA, tranexamic acid, which is good. And the paper also discusses the risk-benefit analysis of anticoagulation following major trauma and the lack of consistency in practice. So very interesting. PE, very, very important diagnosis, but it sounds as if we've certainly got our major trauma patients here that have quite a high incidence of PE. 4.6% is still quite high. But why and what do we do about it? Still a little bit unsure there. But we clearly need more research in that area. And then finally, she's going to ask us to have a look at a paper on the age criteria for the decision rules for the Canadian CT head rule. And that rule recommends as one of the criteria that all patients older than 65 years with minor head injury should have a CT head performed. So this is a Canadian study looking at it, uh, retrospectively reviewing the notes of 104 patients who underwent CT for minor traumatic brain injury and found that increasing the age cut off to 75 didn't really miss any clinically important brain injuries and could reduce the number of scans performed by 25%. Interestingly, though, only eight of the 32 positive scans were triggered purely on age and nothing else in those. So age is still important. And all patients with 75 years of age or older who had the, the TBI on, uh, the significant injury on CT. So also in this study, there were patients excluded from analysis who should have had a CT based on age, but did not, suggesting that some clinicians may already ignore the age criteria when using this. So Caroline thinks that this really echoes practice in the UK when clinicians use the Canadian C-spine rule, but do not necessarily perform cervical spine imaging on every patient with the high risk criteria of age over 65 years. Now, this is really interesting. I think we've got to be cautious about um, taking a small study like this as evidence to remove one of the criteria from a decision rule which has been designed across you know, many thousands of patients. However, I think it makes some sense. And um, for me, I think the age one is always a challenge because when you see a patient, there is, yes, there's the age on the card and then there's the person put in front of you. And certainly in my practice, there are people who are in their 50s who I would consider to be elderly. And there are people in their certainly 60s and 70s who I consider to be pretty sprightly and in pretty good nick. So whether or not that level of gestalt and adjustment can be done by an experienced emergency physician, I don't know. I think I'd be cautious about changing my hospital policy, particularly when it's being delivered by relatively junior people without a little bit more evidence. But... Let's have a think. Age is not just a number. Uh, I think that's a good place to finish, isn't it? So for some of you, I hope that we've met up at the annual scientific conference for the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. And if not, we hope to meet up with you soon. Keep an eye on the journal. Keep submitting. Send us your letters. Send us your comments. Tweet us something. And we will see you all again soon. Have fun. Bye. <laughs>